Every week, we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. I am with David Brown today. David is the fastest blind athlete in the world. The first T11, which we'll talk about, T11 is, is with no sight whatsoever. That's his class. First one to go sub 11 seconds. He is a Paralympic gold medalist, two-time world championship gold medal or world champion, and then also is headed to Tokyo. David, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me today. This is awesome just to watch you go fast. Can, can you tell us just a bit like how you got into racing track? Because when yeah. I think about it and some of our audience, when they think about it, Think about the idea of not being able to see where you're going mm-hmm. and deciding you want to go somewhere really fast when you have no idea what's out there. That sounds a little scary to me. Was it scary to you? Man, very terrifying, actually. So what got me into running, period, was my vision started going bad in my right eye. So at this point, I was six years old. My vision was already gone in my left right eye my vision started decreasing so I started running on the playground against my friends because I was capable of seeing where I was going with the one eye and I was able to dodge and stuff like that but as my vision started decreasing you know things just started getting a little I guess more chaotic as far as like me running but I moved to St. Louis Missouri I'm originally from Kansas City I moved to St. Louis Missouri to attend the Missouri School for the Blind, and I got introduced to track there. And how we run track there is very different than how we do in the Paralympics. We run on these wires that looks like a clothesline, and they went in between these two poles that was like 100 meters apart from each other, and we only ran 60 meters. So I would run holding on to one of the wires, and pretty much that kept me from bumping into a lot of stuff, you know? So with your left hand, you're holding onto this wire or like a clothesline kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then with your right hand, you're with your right arm, you're you're pumping along. Now I also I, I saw somewhere or I read somewhere that you hated track. Is that oh, true? Yeah. I actually did. Um a lot of people was pushing me towards track, and honestly, my heart wasn't there. I loved running, I loved sprinting, but then I got involved with other sports that I felt more like me. Um, wrestling being one of them, you know, I'm a rough houser at heart. So wrestling was one of the sports that I got to participate in, as well as another sport that is also in the Paralympics, goalball. So those two sports I really loved doing and I wanted to pursue those. And the more that somebody tried to push me towards the track aspect of things, the more I was just kind of like, you know what? No, I do not want to do track. Like this is, this is crap. And I couldn't really see myself going anywhere beyond the high school realm of no track and field, because I didn't know how to run or how it was ran. So I say outside of what we were doing at the school for the blind, I'm like, if this is what I got to do, then I don't want to do this. You know, I'd rather do wrestling. I'd rather do goalball because I feel like there's some growth there. Okay, you're going to have to tell us a little bit of how did how did wrestling work for you? I mean, because, you know, Mm -hmm. when you're down, you can kind of make it work. But if somebody's going for a takedown on you, you you don't really see them. So that can be a problem, right? Yeah. So, of course, you have contact as well as non-contact wrestling. Uh, My coach at that time, Deke Edwards, he's in the Wrestling Hall of Fame, actually. Um, he's also totally blind. He used to wrestle with non-contact. And of course, it's all about sensory, but with how we did it in the blind school and how we were able to do it within the district tournaments and the regional tournaments that I went to, you know, we did contact. So that's one hand up, one hand down. Our fingers touch across the center of the of the you know, of the mat. And then once the whistle blows, boom, there you go. You can start, you know, your takedown. You can lock up, whatever else, but there's the contact. It's constant contact the whole time. As soon as contact is broke, then, okay, boom, the, the I guess, action stops. And then, of course, we reset. So, okay. yeah. 
And were you, were you wrestling just against, against blind athletes or were you wrestling against sighted athletes as well? Yeah, I wrestled that. I wrestled everybody. Um, I got as far as uh, districts, um, in, uh, the state, uh, in the state of Missouri, I was one place short of going to state and that was wrestling against sighted people. Uh, I went, been to Colorado, you know, wrestling in Colorado as well. Uh, I was conference champion for four years in, uh, you know, my, my schooling and stuff like that. And when I say conference champion, so different schools for the blind will come together and will have different tournaments. So Missouri school for the blind, Kansas School for the Blind, Wisconsin School for the Blind, Illinois School for the Blind. So these kind of schools for the blind around this certain region, and we are called uh, the North Central Association of Schools for the Blind, NCASB. I was conference champion for four years. Uh, my fifth year, I got silver. So um, yeah, I mean, I was pretty good. And I was planning on going to college, but the door opened up for me to be able to come to the Olympic Training Center. And here I am now. <laughs> which is interesting i do before we get there i want want you to describe what goal ball is because a lot of people probably have no idea what goal ball is now that's a fun sport like in itself and if you ever and i'll say this to anybody you know if you ever have an opportunity to play it you know go for it and uh, it's blindfolded first and foremost so everybody is on the equal playing field just kind of like us t11s and I call it reverse dodgeball on the ground, you know, because <laughs> the object is you roll this ball that has bells in it. It's three pounds. The ball is three pounds. And you roll the ball that has bells in it to uh, the opposite side of the court. And you're supposed to roll it to the back of the goal line. So there's this box that you're playing within. And I believe it's like, I don't really remember the measurements for it. But um, like a soccer goal. Does that sound right? And, and like like the size of a yeah, soccer. Yeah. So you're yeah. It's looking. It looks like a soccer goal. Um. And the box that you're playing within, you know, it's on the ground, of course. So you're not literally in a box, you know. But um, it's these lines that you're having to stay within. You have a overthrow line too. So think of it kind of like the foul line, and you can you can only roll the ball behind the foul line. If you roll it over the foul line, then you know, boom. The object is to roll the ball to the back of that box, and you're supposed to throw your body in front of it and block it, you know. So, um, yeah, I was pretty good at that, too. Uh, I, I played center for my team. We won two years in a row, um, and ever since I was playing center, too, like, we were in the top three of our conference as well, you know. So it was kind of like a gradual progression throughout the years and so yeah my team that I played on in at the school for the blind we made history actually that was the first time that any of anybody at that school won conference back to back so it was a great it was a great sport and I wouldn't mind playing it again <laughs> well it's a Paralympic sport too right it's, yeah it is it is they tend to go for people that are taller than me I think <laughs> cover more ground <laughs> I guess that's probably true. You're, you're a bigger obstacle, the taller you are. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. So now how did, how did the track thing happen? You were saying that, that you got invited to go to the training center. So mm -hmm. track really kind of blossomed where the other two didn't quite go in the same direction. Yeah. So pretty much uh, there was a shifting for me in the year of 2008. I was invited to or selected more so to attend the Beijing games live so I had to write an essay and I had to put in that essay what sport like meant to me at that period of time how had it impacted my life and honestly sport has changed my life for the better and so I wrote an essay pertaining to that topic and my essay was selected out of hundreds of applicants they were only taking 25 and I was one of the 25 so what did, it mean to of, what did you say in your essay so I just pretty much like I wrote down that you know up until that point you know I never knew that 
sport period, like sports period, where was possible for somebody with a disability as myself. You know, um, as I mentioned, sport, you know, it changed my life. It helped me come out of some very dark places that I was in, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> but it, you know, I was 13 years old and I was uh, on the verge of suicide and I was able to tap into sport in order to help, you know, get myself through those dark times that I was in, you know, I drove myself into wrestling, you know, track and, you know, go ball. And I was applying a lot of the concepts like, you know, hey, resistance is going to come from every which way. I'm not going to let this overtake me. And then I would just, you know, push back against, you know, whatever it is, you know. So this person that's pushing me now, that's trying to pin me down, I'm not going to let them beat me, you know. So I'll do things like that. And I was, you know, switching my mind you know around about life and like I said I was able to come through you know a very dark time and when I was 15 years old when that came up I was able to put that in that paper and you know they selected me to go and witness the Beijing games and being in the bird's nest that's when my dream of becoming a Paralympic athlete in the sport of track took you no know, flight I guess you could say because I was able to look down towards the track and realize that, you know, these guys are as blind as I am and they're running super fast. I can do that. I run super fast. You know, I want to do that. I was able to see, you know, uh, one of our athletes, you know, one of my training partners actually get gold there too. So that kind of like, I guess, motivated me to become a Paralympic athlete. In 2010, this is when the door opened up for me to be able to run on a relay team, pin relays. I was nothing but like seven, no, 16, 17 years old at that time. So they invited me to run anchor. So I went to pin relays. And after I ran like, there, Kathy like Sellers hitter, was the right? one. Hmm? Anchor that, being the anchor, that's like being the cleanup hitter. Like that's the yeah. That's the guy, I was right? the I was the clutch right there, you know. And here I am. I don't even really know how to run, and I had to run with a guide. And this was my first time kind of running with a guide, you know. And you, oddly enough, my first guide in this scenario was Jerome Avery. So that was funny. <laughs> ended up being your guide who, who you also saw him win the gold with another athlete in 2008 yeah. right in Beijing yep so I saw him two years prior and then all of a sudden here I am I'm about to run with this dude I'm like oh wait yeah I heard it I know wait oh snap and I'm like okay well I don't even know what in the heck I'm doing and like I said they got me running anchor and then I had to run 100 meters and you know, my training wasn't on par, but you no, know, that was good enough, honestly, to get me into uh, the adult nationals at that time. So I got to go and try to, you know, try out to make the world championships team in 2011. Kathy Sellers at that time, you know, who was our head director of, you know, U.S. Paralympics, she just saw the potential that was in me and she kept inviting me to different development camps throughout the years. Eventually, I made the team to go to Guadalajara, Mexico. And once I graduated from high school, um, April of 2012, she invited me to come and live and train full time at the Olympic Training Center. And the rest is history from there. What was it like in high school? So this is all starting to happen. You go to Beijing, you write the essay, you go to Beijing, but and then you start getting invited to camps. You're running with, with Jerome. What's your position like in your high school, in your school? Do you feel like, hey, I'm I'm moving on. This is this is what I'm doing. Or was there any jealousy? Was there uh, were people psyched for you? How did it work? I feel like there was a little bit of all those things you just said. You know, there was some jealousy. There was some excitement. Um, but you know that happens with life. Period. You know, there are a lot of things happen like that. You know, but um. Me, I just stayed focused in school. I was a, I was an A student, and um, I was just like, you know what, I'm going to do what I want to do, and this is what I want to do. So I'm just going to continue to move forward. I feel like this is a 
opportunity for me to be able to make the London games because that's where I wanted to make. So of course I was going to utilize whatever resource that I could. And, you know, I didn't really worry about the naysayers, you know, and I just took the ones who were motivating me in the sense of celebrating at the same time. I just used that as fuel and I would just kept on going. What's the, um, so when, when you started doing that, you, you actually got classified for the first time, right? As a T11, what did, what did that mean to you when you got classified? What was the significant? At first I got classified as a T12. So when I got classified as a T11, that was actually scary for me because that's, you know, put the stamp on, and not only classified as a T11, I was confirmed T11. So, and you're going to have to describe the difference between T12 and T11, please. Yeah, so um, T11, pretty much, the T stands for track. 11 is the indication of blindness. The first number in the 11, so the first one, that indicates the classification. So if you see one, two, three, four, five, that will sig- you know, signify the, the class. So if you see a five, that's like a wheelchair athlete for arm amp or you know whatever three is a cerebral palsy so things along that line 11 the ones are usually for the no blindies as i call us (laughs) and then the second number indicates the severity of the disability so you have one two three so t11 12 and 13 the lower the number the severe the disability so i'm on the lowest end there is that means we run with no sight we run with blinders over our eyes and then of course the higher the number the more you go up then the more sight you have so 12 they have an option to run with a guide or run without a guide and the 13s they're pretty much considered legally blind and you know they're as close to a regular olympian as you know you can get me personally i was a t12 at first so i had a little bit of sight and I was knocking on the door of T11. And no, I have light perception now. I can see some shapes, shadows and colors and stuff. And you know, my vision was wavering in and out and I'm, I was able to see pretty good walking. But then when I ran, uh, things got very blurry for me. So classification is where we actually get classified on what class we are in you know 12 13 or 11 me i was a 12 then i got classed down to an 11 and confirmed at that me that was very scary because now here i was able to run without blinders on i was able to utilize the little site that i had because i was even long jumping at the time and i was using the little site that i had to help me get down the runway and so, of course, now I have to run with blinders on and I have to do all this stuff completely blind. It was terrifying to me. And it wasn't that, you know, a lot of people say, you know, it's a trust factor. It wasn't that I didn't trust the people that, you know, were helping me. I didn't trust myself. So that was a very scary thing, you know, going into the class. Yeah, that's for sure. I would imagine because, you know, and, and there's got to be a part of it, the stigma part of it in some ways too, where they tell you, no, you, you are blind. You're not visually impaired. You're blind. Yeah. That had to be hard too, didn't it? Yeah, it was very hard, honestly. Um, that's something I've been hearing pretty much all my life. Uh, it started, so a little background, age of 15 months old, everyone, I got diagnosed with Kawasaki's disease which gave me glaucoma. When I was three years old, I had a surgery for my left eye. Like I mentioned, that shrunk my eye into my eye socket. That's why I didn't have no sight in it anymore. So I was at least six years without a prosthetic shell in my eye. You know, I was walking around with a hole in my face. When I was six years old, my right eye started decreasing and well, my right eye started decreasing in sight and it did that for seven years. And it stabilized when I was 13 years old with light perception, shapes, shadows, and um, colors. And that's pretty much where I am now. It probably gotten a little worse 
and this is why I am in the classification of T11 now. You know, um, back then I can probably say it wasn't as bad as it is now, but hey, no such as life, because maybe I don't use it as much anymore. That's probably why it got worse. But um, from the age of like six all the way up until I was about, you know, um, 17, 18 years old when I got um, classified and confirmed. Actually, no, I was 21. Yeah, so pretty much up to the age of 21, you know, I was being told you're blind, you're blind, you're blind, you're blind, you're going blind, you know, and that's a very terrible, no, a very terrifying thing to hear. I mean, just place yourself in that position for yourself. If somebody were to tell you, hey, you're losing your sight, you know, that would <laughs> be scary. A, it's, it's not a walk the, in the park, you know. <laughs> no, it's not, one of the scariest things that that I think a lot of people, you know, I mean, it's, it's kind of like, what, what are your greatest fears? And, and I think for a lot of people losing their sight is a, is a fear just of like, well, how do I, how can I even get out of my bedroom? How can I, how yeah. can I, you know, go out on the street? How can I do whatever? Mm -hmm. How can I, how can I leave anything without, without being able to see what's going on? So yeah, it's mm -hmm. terrifying, but it sounded like it was also empowering on some level too, right? Yeah, very much so. So, of course, it took for me to lose my sight in order for me to gain, you know, insight mm -hmm. into another realm of what you can't see unless you actually close your eyes and you tune into it. You know, I've, I've gotten that quite a bit of times, too. You know, people, you know, saying things along the lines of like, you know, hey, I can't see myself being like that, or I don't know how you can do it, or I even feel sorry for you. I, I actually look at them and I'm like, you know what, I actually feel sorry for you. And then of course they look at me crazy and they're like, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, you can't see what I see. And that's the thing, you know, it, it, it is very empowering because of course when, you know, a lot of people ask, you know, you lose one sight, does that mean all your other sites are you know, um, senses are enhanced. No, it's just I rely on other, my other senses. And by being able to do that, that means I'm able to utilize my imagination a lot more. I'm able to smell, you know, tap into that a lot more. I'm able to listen a lot more deeply. I'm able to, you know, sense things that's around me. And it's, oh, excuse me, I'm sorry. Um, I'm able to sense things around me as far as like uh, proprioceptors and awareness and stuff like that. I'm able to feel myself, you know, um, moving through the air. I feel like it makes me a better athlete at the same time because I'm able to actually feel my body moving through space and time and know where I need to plant my feet at what time, even if it isn't the right way. But, you know, it. a lot of those things is being able to adapt and then less way of injuries and stuff like that. So there's a lot of different benefits that can come with being blind too at the same time. Which most people don't even begin to consider, right? That yeah. you've had the experience and you've had to adapt in a way that, that other people really don't have to confront. And so they haven't been able to see just how powerful they might be where, where for you, you have a pretty decent idea of how powerful you are. Did you fall in did, at this time? Did you fall in love with track or did you still hate track or when did, did, did that ever happen? Did you ever fall in love? With <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> but yeah, um, I actually did. I did fall. Uh, I don't know if I fell in love with uh, track as much as I fell in love with uh, the journey. I fell in love with the grind. Me, I'm an athlete inside and out and I love, um, being able to learn different athletics. And um, like when it came to wrestling, I loved training. I loved, you know, the competition, of course, but I love the training, just the grind behind it. Goal ball, same thing. I love the grind behind it. You know, track is no different. You know, I did fall in love with track, but I love the grind that is behind it. I love being able to put the work in and pushing myself to, you know, different limits and breaking those limits and those different barriers, you know? So um, that came like f around, honestly, 2012, when I did get invited to live here, when I moved here, um, I got access to so many different resources. And I was like, you know what? I'm not going to 
know, sit on these resources that I have available. I'm going to take advantage of this. And, you know, to this day, I don't know if my coach actually knows that I was doing some of these things, but, you know, I made the team to go to London you know, six weeks after I moved to the training center. And, you no, know, this is me coming from ground zero. But one thing that helped me get there was, of course, throwing myself into my workouts. And then I was doing my own kind of workouts on top of that. I was going to the treadmill and doing interval workouts. I was, you know, doing different bike workouts and stuff like that. I was, you know, like I mentioned, grinding. And I love doing that. I love just pushing the limits. And, of course, not saying I'm not doing that on the track. But, you know, it's like, okay, my coach, he has his workouts. He wants me to do a, a sign, a design kind of thing. But then I love being able to piece together my own things and just putting in some extra stuff. And then I can push my own limits and be like, okay, I'm going to go 80% here. I'm going to go just 60% here. And then, you know, piecing things together like that. So then are you more in control of who you are as an athlete and what you need, knowing what your body needs, or does your coach have to put a governor on you and go, David, you're not allowed to do all those extra workouts. We've got a plan here. How, do, how does this balance work? Yeah. So at first, that second one was the case he did put a limit on what I could or couldn't do he was like no you're not allowed to do the extra stuff you're not allowed to do this that and the third because you're getting hurt you know but the thing with me was of course I was a baby athlete in the sense I didn't understand fully recovery I didn't understand nutrition you know there was a lot of things I wasn't able to get a good grasp on honestly until last year during quarantine but, you know, these periods of time, I was like, you know what, I was just, I was just going and I was just doing stuff and I was just throwing things together. And I guess you could say I was overdoing it and um, under recovering. And so that would affect my training on the track for the next day. So my coach was like, no, nah, you can't do these extra things. But the more that I gained knowledge about myself as an individual, as an athlete and stuff like that, you know, what I need to do to recover in order to help myself be able to go from point A to point B, you know, fully, I started putting extra stuff back in there again. And um, he didn't know that because, of course, I was able to recover and be able to put a good quality workout in the next day. So um, still to this day, I do extra stuff, you know, uh, after my workouts and stuff, because um, I was able to, I'm able to grasp a little bit more of who I am as an individual athlete and what I need in order to be able to recover fully now too and I feel uh, parts of that helped like I said last year and then um, me being a massage therapist and a holistic health practitioner that really helped as well so understanding that recovery aspect of things you know that's something that a lot of athletes don't have grasp on and that was one of them now what what happened to your coach Joaquin Cruz right who who was yeah uh, who is an 800 meter gold medalist for Brazil is in the Brazil Brazilian hall of fame. What happens if he, if he watches this, if he listens to this, are you in trouble then? He just says, don't hurt yourself at this point. <laughs> okay. I mean, he knows that. Um, and I even told him last year during quarantine time, you know, when we started picking back up workouts and stuff, I was letting him know the extra stuff that I was doing. And these extra things is nothing too crazy. It's more just like along the lines of more cardio based, you know, I'll go on walks. Um, I will uh, uh, do like an easy bike ride, you know, stationary bike, or maybe do some jump rope or, you know, uh, I'll do some, hip mobility type things and stuff like that. So it was nothing that is going to severely get me injured. Things that I used to do, you know, prior to, you know, this kind of stuff and everything else I used to, um, well, first I used to uh, run the 400 too. So I used to have to do 400 meter training. So of course, after putting in all that kind of volume, I would then come back out and then I would go into the sandbox and then I would do like some stuff in the sandbox um like some high knees fast feet stuff some squat jumps and all this other stuff and then i'll get like a medicine ball and i'll do like medicine ball stuff high knee fast feet stuff and like i was putting in a lot more 
like volume type things, a lot more pounding than what I do nowadays, you know? So a lot of this stuff that I'm doing now, it's, uh, it pays off in the long run because it's like maintenance stuff, you know? So. Okay. Mm-hmm. What will you run in Tokyo? You're going to run the hundred. Are you going to run the 200 as well? You're not running the 400 though. So sadly they took out the 200 in our class and the right. 200 is my favorite race. But yeah, I'm only running the 100 this time around, which is very weird to me. But <laughs> um, but yeah, we're just one and done, literally. One and done, you're in, yeah. And, and that's one which leads into talking about the guide because you and, you and Jerome worked well together and Jerome Avery was what, top 20 in the Olympic trials in 2000, top 15 in 2004, not high enough to make the team but if somebody's going to run with you they have to be of that kind of caliber yeah in order to in order to be a guide you can't just show up at your local track and say hey uh, i'm gonna run some hundred meters can i get somebody to join me how did that work when you first started working with with uh jerome so um, Jerome came around in 2014 when I was in need of a new guy. Jerome was still working with the athlete that he ran with in 2008. Um, I was uh, in search of a new guy because the guy that I was with at that time didn't really have the availability to be able to train and uh, navigate a lot of things as far as like life goes. So Jerome was asking my coach she's like hey do you guys need some help you know maybe I can run some reps with them so my coach was like yeah you know what let's run some reps together and let's see how this goes so me and Jerome we tethered up and he was like I want you guys to do a workout together so we did a block workout and he was like you guys look good okay I want you to run the first competition together at least the first two and we're going to see how this pairs up so the first competition we ran together you know, that went great. Um, I ran a personal best. And then the next competition, I ran, you know, slightly faster and another personal best, of course. And um, my coach was like, you know what, y'all going to run together for the rest of the season. And let's see where this goes. You know, this can be a great partnership. And, you know, the rest was history from there. You know, of course, we ran together in, you know, Doha, Qatar in 2015. We got know gold at world championships and then of course in Rio and we've been running together up until you know this year where we sadly had to part ways (laughs) exactly so can we back up just a little bit so of course we're talking about you tethered up so what is what is the tether what is there a strategy for the tether in terms of like which fingers you put it around or that kind of thing now, I, I feel like if I tell you that, you know, I'm giving information that my uh, competitors. <laughs> I don't want to do that. I don't want to. I don't want to help them. No, I'm just joking. But <laughs> um, as far as the tether goes, uh, before there was a a tether that any, you know you can make yourself. Uh, everybody had their different ways of tethering to their uh, guide runners. You know, some of the foreign athletes, they were literally wrapping their hands together. And so they were running pretty much wrapping their arms around one another and, you know, ran like that. Uh, my tether. Your arms around each other. So it was like, so, yeah. so oh, your right arm over, over his shoulder, his left arm over your, over your left shoulder kind of thing like that. So it was a, okay, um, so think of it like a three-legged race, you know, so you're standing right next to each other, you're running right next to each other, and then their left arm, right hand, you know, they go right next to each other, like back of their hands are right next to each other, and then they would wrap like almost like a string or maybe like some cloth around their hands, and now their hands are stuck together like that so the back of their hands are stuck together and they would run like that so their hands are the three-legged race kind of thing where yeah okay yeah so of course it's no different for uh how uh i guess um me and my guys run now 
uh, the difference is, you know, instead of our hands being wrapped together, uh, I had a shoestring that I tied in a certain way to where you could put two fingers in on each side. And it was no more than like three inches long. Personally, I put um, my middle finger and my ring finger into the, the tether. And that's how we ran pretty much. And like I said, it was just nothing but uh, loops on the end of a shoestring. Nowadays, they have a default tether that every athlete athlete must use. And this is manufactured in a, you know, factory. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's like a ribbon and there's rubber on the end of it. And it's non-stretchy rubber, of course. And because you can't stretch it long. It's 30 centimeters long and it's one big loop on each side. Like you could stick your whole hand in it if your hand is small enough. And how you put your fingers in that, it's all based off of how you want to. Me personally, I kind of like fold it over on itself to where then there's like two loops and then I put my two fingers through that. Um, I wish I had it. I could have put it on camera, you know, and just showed everybody. <laughs> But, but so much of it is is creating this this connection, right? This connection between you and your guide. I mean, you talked about the three-legged race and and to watch you guys, I mean, you ran 10.92. Yeah. And and you you each took the exact same step. So it was like your foot hits the ground, his hit his foot hits the ground at the same time, your foot lifts, his foot lifts at the same time. Mm-hmm. And and to be in that kind of unison, how do you, how do you achieve that kind of unison? I'd imagine it was really hard when you first started. Yeah. So Jerome, at that period of time, he was guiding for a very long time. Um, me personally, I did not know how to run. So he had to, adapt. well, the guide must adapt to the runner first and foremost. So no matter how the runner is running, the guide must adapt. Now, the guide's job is, of course, to keep the runner inside of their lanes. But if the runner is like running with short strides and stuff like that, the guide has to adapt to that, you know, and hit the ground at the same time as the the runner is, as well as keeping their arms in sync, you know, so everything has to be synchronized. You know, the runner has to be able to run freely. So keep your speed going at the same yeah, time. Yeah, and keep your speed going at the same time. So pretty much it takes a lot of um, training with the tether. So of course we warm up with the tether in the sense of uh, our, our uh, warm-up laps. So we'll run around the track together with the tether. And then of course the workout we do um with the tether as well the more that you're able to use the tether and get those stride patterns down you know the better so that's pretty much how you know the key to getting so in sync is the more that you do it the i want to say the easier it gets but it's just more the more in sync everything gets because of course you're able to feel it a lot better feel working in unison with with the guide and you obviously it sounds like you start slowly as well like your warm-up laps yeah starting more slowly you're getting that rhythm you're getting that connection Mm -hmm. but then what happens when the gun goes off because then then you've got to go fast and your mind is telling you go fast do what you need to do he has to run fast i mean jerome yeah ran faster than you did but not so much faster Mm -hmm. that that he has too much freedom right I mean there's not too much of a range of uh of ability there right where he can he can kind of he's not jogging when he's going with you he's running fast Mm -hmm. yeah so the guide um they have to keep up their speed in the sense of they have to be fast enough to be able to tell me where I am on the track at all time in the sense of 20 meters, 30 meters, 50 meters, 60 meters, 70 meters, 80 meters, 90 meters, and lean. So of course, and able to be uh, comfortable doing that, they have to be, you know, at a a decent, um, I guess you could say 
distance in front of me in the sense of how fast they are. Mm-hmm. And um, because the guy, like the athlete can only go as fast as the guide is capable of going. That's one thing, you know. So if a guide is only running 10 8, you know, an athlete can't go 10 8. You know, we can only go, you know, 0.3 seconds slower than, you know, what my, uh, the guide is, you know, currently at because in order for them to be that comfortable, that's how slow, no, pretty much 70% of where their max speed is. That's what's going to, that's what's going to be comfortable for them. So the guide is going to have to be, you know, fast. So from the gun, you know, for them to be able to make that adaptations as soon as I get out, you know, and for them to be at 70%, they want to have to be, you know, far ahead in the sense of how far, you know, fast they're going and they will have to pick it up because of course, if I'm out in front of them, you know, they can't slow me down. Right. You know, the guide cannot hinder the athlete. If they're hindering the athlete, then, you know, there's some changes that needs to be made. But, you know, they have to get out. They have to, you know, make that adjustment. You know, they have to pick it up. And then they'll have to, you know, like I said, do all those things that I mentioned earlier as far as, like, you know, keep me in my lanes and um, let me know where I am on the track as far as, like, 50 meters. You know, um, sometimes they let me know if there's somebody on the inside of me. Like, okay, yo, there's somebody right there, Dave. Like, pick it up. You know, different things of those things, you know, like of that sort. How, because uh, because there's a there there's a message essentially right where it's drive 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 and then accelerate maintain twenty five and then lean right so so is this is this how the conversation is going as you're as in your hundred meters or does it change hundred by hundred based on based on how things work out in the race. Yeah, I would say it's based off of uh, how things work out in the race. And it's also based off of the guide as well. You know, um, Drum is very vocal. And uh, he's, from the start of the gun all the way to the end of the race, you heard Rome. You know, the guy that I am with now, he's not as vocal, but he tells me those necessary things in order for me to know where I am on the track. You know, he'll let me know, drive, drive, drive. All right, accelerate. There you go. You know, 60 meters. 25 lean you know so he's not really saying as much but you know um at this point in my career you know a lot of uh a lot of noise is not necessary in the sense of just like you know let me know hey get your knees up you know get your arms up move like this there's somebody right there you know um uh, i just need to know where i am i just need to know the necessities right now you know (laughs) what is what is a great race feel like i mean you've broken the world record you've broken 11 yeah. seconds what does a great race feel like for you and and is it different you know being able to work with a with a guide or or having to work with a guide there are two of you instead of one of you yeah so um a great race for me it feels uh, like i'm not even running fast honestly uh when i broke the world record in 2014 uh going 1092 i I didn't even feel like I was going that fast. I knew I wanted to break it. I knew I was, you know, determined to get it because um, the race when I went 1092 and it was legal, uh, the week prior to that, I went 1096 actually, and it was an illegal, uh, illegal wind. And so it was like, okay, I already went, you know, under 11 seconds, but it didn't stick. So I was like super mad about it. And so I came out with determination. And when I crossed the finish line, I thought I didn't break it because I thought I was running very slowly. And, um, you know, that's one thing that happens when you have a great execution of a race, you know, you don't feel like you're really moving that quick. It does get a lot more trickier when you're dealing with two people, because of course, now you're not just having to worry about yourself. You're having to worry about your guide, like, okay, like I mentioned, if your guide doesn't react as fast as you do, then what, you know, or if you, your guide doesn't synchronize with you on one step, you know, now what, you know, me personally, as far as if I start bumping into my guide, now what, if I go to the right and he has to pull me in, now what, you know, so it does get a little more trickier when you're dealing with two people. And um, if you're both spot on, 
it's just super smooth and silky. It's, it feels great. Well, that's it. And, and like at trials, you guys had a little bit of a, a bump right, right out of the mm-hmm. start, which is, which is going to cost you tenths of a second, really, right? And yeah. you know, 100 meters, everything has to go perfectly in order to happen mm-hmm. the way that you want it to. Some of it's that rhythm, right? And so, so with Jerome, and we'll talk about more in a, in a second here, of course. but, um, but with Jerome, you guys, so part of it was music, right? You guys brought some music to this that, that helped you with, with getting in the rhythm of, of running fast. Um, I wouldn't say it was necessarily like helping us get into the rhythm of running fast, but it helped us get on a certain tempo on the same pace, mm-hmm. you know, like, uh, it gave us something to be able to uh, base our tempo on, like our pace on, our speed on. And this is just something that we used in the sense of like our warm up. like just say we're just jogging and then all of a sudden I just like hear our feet just pattering in the same kind of like tempo like this or something like that. And then I'm just like, okay, got that metronome. And then I'm like, boom, 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 boom. you know what I'm saying? Whatever, you know, so we just start beatboxing and just doing stuff like that and just got in the same kind of uh, rhythm in that aspect. I mean, music, we always brought music to the track and stuff like that in the sense of, you know, warm-up songs and, you know, if we got a, like a chill vibe or something like that, that, that was just something to just, you know, get you in a mood of training, you know. I never really looked at it in the sense of just, oh, yeah, this is what's going to help us get in sync and stuff like that, but I, it was just more so just like, all right, you know, this is very chill you know, cool. <laughs> Let's get going. You know, I try to bring my, the own, the, the energy, you know, myself. And then of course, you know, if he has more energy, I try to match it. And I thought, or I felt it was uh, vice versa. If I had more energy than him, same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Because it is, it is getting in sync. If it's, if it's mm-hmm. work and it does, it does change day by day, right? That one day you feel great and the next day you feel a little bit lethargic and yeah, and it's exactly. just, and sometimes you're not even aware of it, right? That you you feel mm-hmm. sort of lethargic, but you think that you feel great and, and you're not, you're not reacting the way that you should and everything. So yeah, there's, there is that, I mean, there's that teamwork, there's that trust you were talking about earlier, how, how when you first started, you didn't really trust yourself. But trusting, because one of the things for you is running straight. I mean, it sounds simple, right? I mean, it mm-hmm. sounds simple. Like the first thing you have to do is you have to run straight because if you don't run straight, you're not going to run fast. Yeah. How did, how did you get into, into that part of it where you were able to, to run straight and then, then effectively you're able to tap into your motor? Like you have a good motor, but... Mm-hmm. If you're not going to go straight, it doesn't really matter how good your motor is. So yeah. was that just this epiphany when when finally you're like, I'm running straight like this is this is good. Now we can go fast. So that actually didn't happen until last year during quarantine. Um, I was able to take like 11 leaps back in a sense, you know, and actually break down my form and pretty much figure out how sprinting works, you know, not just for um, a general, like just not just for an athlete, but for me, you know, everybody is different, you know, and um, every body type is different. So of course, one thing that I feel when it comes to blind sprinters, you know, in my case, especially, considering the fact that we can't see what we're doing and how our technique's supposed to look, sometimes we don't get how it's supposed to feel. So for a number of years, I was just out there running, not really knowing what I was doing or how certain things were supposed to feel, you know, and then sometimes in those cases, not knowing how things supposed to feel or how things supposed to go, you end up adapting your running style to your guide instead of, you know, them adapting to you, you end up adapting theirs. And then now you're becoming a whole different athlete than, you know, who you are, what you're supposed to be. Last year, I was able to tap into 
you know, myself and figure out what I need to do in order, in order to be able to run straight, not only run straight, but to be able to, you know, be stronger and be able to have proper form. And that's what it took was to, for me to break down the proper form for myself in order to be able to run straight to when I did start tethering up with a guide, it made things just, you know, that much easier. And when I figured out that, hey, I am actually running straight, you know, it was um, when my coach pointed it out, he was like, man, you've been spot on this whole time. And this is when, of course, like I mentioned, we're training during quarantine. Um, we were training in a parking lot. You know, we're all masked up and everything else. And I'm running toward, towards him. He's like, you've been spot on this whole time. I'm like, I have, haven't I? <laughs> he was like, that's crazy. He's like, you done figured it out. He was like, man, this season's about to be a wrap. I don't know what you're doing, but keep doing it. <laughs> and that's because, I'm like, okay, coach. <laughs> and that's because you'd been doing it by yourself. You'd been running on your own and you'd been running straight as opposed to running with a guide. Is that, is that? Yeah. So I was able to run by myself and I was able to figure out, you know, arm swing. I was able to figure out legs, you know, core, all this stuff. Like I said, I was able to figure it out by myself. You know, like I mentioned, sometimes you run tethered to another athlete so many times, you know, if you don't know what's going on or how certain things are supposed to feel, then you start adapting yourself to theirs you know, to their body and stuff like that. Because of course, as an individual, you know, you figure things out, but then of course we become as a unit. So then things feel different, you know? So I was able to figure out things by myself and from me running by myself, I was able to piece things together and learn how to run straight. And then when I did tether back up, that just made things a lot more smoother. That's amazing. I mean, that sounds super cool. So it is this proprioception that you were talking about before where you don't mm -hmm. necessarily see it, but you're figuring out with your arm swing, with your leg swing, that you're figuring out how to go fast and how to direct yourself fast where you're not, because that, that as, as you were talking about, it sounded like it can be a challenge with, mm -hmm. with the guide where if you move a little bit to the right, then he's helping you to move back. But it's always like, like there's, there's another correction after it, right? If you're too far yeah. right, then you move to the left, then you have to correct back to the right. And you feel like you're correcting the whole way down. Whereas mm -hmm. what you're talking about now is that you've figured out how to go straight. And so you figured out how to go straight, but then you lost the guide that you've had for the last seven years, right? Mm -hmm. working with Jerome and you've had to get a new guide what was what was that like because you had the guy who had all the experience before you who'd worked with world champions who'd worked with Paralympic champions of course now you've got a guy who who what when you first got together was was a freshman in college and had yeah. no idea about the Paralympics or hadn't even been on an airplane and <laughs> these things, right? yeah I mean, he's fresh faced for real to like everything, especially guide running. And um, man, uh, honestly, he says it himself. He said it, I made it that much easier for him when it come, you know, came to guide running because he guided other athletes before, you know, in the sense of uh, Desert Challenge, you know, what took place in May. He guided some other blind athletes and he's like, man, Dave, he's like, you just make it that much easier. <laughs> by me learning how to run straight. And honestly, that is what helped him when we brought him in and uh, another guide runner as well, you know, um, bringing in the two guides, you know, to see, okay, first, are you guys qualified to guide? Are y'all capable of guiding? You know, me being able to run straight, you know, I even apologized to them. I was like, you know what, guys, I'm sorry, because, you know, I've made it easy for you guys. You know, guide running is not this simple, but, um, yeah, by me running straight, it brought him into, I guess, a faster confidence in, um, you know, this is something he could do. And then, of course, uh, that also helped for when we um, tethered up together and we started competing and started doing other workouts and stuff like that. You know, we were able to go a lot faster than what, honestly, I expected we were going to be able to go. So, um, having that uh, 
all that base of me being able to go straight already and having the technique and form down, it just made things easier for um, when he can't you know when he came in, as well as the other guys, I was able to tell them, hey, this is what I need you to do. This is what I want you to do. This is what uh, you need to try. Try doing this, try doing that. And then they're making that adaptation. You know, that really helped, you know, with the process as well. That's an interesting dynamic, right? Because it's easy to think that the guide is the one who is providing the instruction or the direction. But what you're saying, and, and that probably was the case for you when you first started, because you didn't really know anything. Yeah. But I'd imagine the dynamic, and, and tell me if I'm wrong on this, I'd imagine that dynamic works better now that you know what you need, what you're looking for, and, and have the ability to communicate that to a guide to say, hey, you need to be my eyes. This is the way it's going to work. This is what I need. This is what we're going to do. Yeah, honestly, I feel the dynamic is so much better because now I'm able to communicate a lot more. Like you mentioned, prior to this, I wasn't able to communicate effectively on what I actually needed, what I needed to do, how I needed to feel, how what you no, know, how or what needed to happen in order for me to get from point A to point B. But since I'm able to communicate those things now, you know, and having these guys being able to adapt to that, you know, it's been a tremendous no increase, honestly. And I'm looking forward to what's going to happen, you know, um, come Tokyo, but more so in the future, you know, this is going to be a, um, a pretty explosive kind of like um, moving forward with a lot of things. A lot of potential. And Tokyo mm -hmm. is the next one on, on the menu though, right? So mm -hmm. Tokyo, I've been watching the Olympics. I'd imagine you have as well. And it's, looks fast right there i mean mm -hmm. i remember why i watched some of the oh women's 100 meter uh, oh, yeah they're moving and they're looking and they're going and all these women are going sub 11 and and they've never mm -hmm. gone sub 11 before and they were they were totally surprised so it sounds like it is a fast track over there do you have any expectations do you have any more intel than i do that i'm watching on television as far as the track is concerned and how's that going to suit you I mean, honestly, like you said, it's looking like a fast track and I'm excited to get over there and, you know, uh, compete on it. Uh, of course, our goal is just go over there and execute and uh, make some things happen because, of course, you know, this is uh, my guide runners, his first time on a big stage like this. And honestly, this will be my first time as I feel an athlete, you know, prior to this, I just felt like I was out there competing, not really knowing what I was doing, not really knowing know how to piece things together or do certain things and stuff like that I had a concept but now I actually feel like I'm a vet in this thing and I'm excited to go out there and you know see what we produce you know win or lose it's going to be a great games honestly and like I said just moving forward I'm looking forward to all this potential that's going to come with this that is a little bit scary for you to say that this is the first time that you feel like an athlete because you've won Paralympic medals, you've won world championship medals, you yeah. are the fastest guy in the world. It throws and off everybody when I say that, but it's the truth. <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> well, if, if I'm competing against you, which luckily I'm not, I am a little bit scared by that. <laughs> that is funny. Now, you also, I mean, this is, you're using your sport as a vehicle in a lot of ways and, and, and helping other kids. I mean, helping kids who are in a similar situation to you mm -hmm. being a mentor, being a role model in some ways, you came out with a documentary or I don't know, how did, how did this documentary happen? So, so untethered mm -hmm. was on the CW, right? So that was, that was yesterday. Was that yesterday? Wait, it was on CW. Oh, I thought it was, maybe I was wrong. Maybe I'm wrong in that. Um, I know it was on YouTube. Was I on mean, YouTube. there was something was on the, on yeah, YouTube. there was something okay. on the CW that, you know, Jerome and I had, uh, that was uh, Jerome talking about his story. Oh, and, maybe that's um, what that was. That okay. was uh, All American Heroes, I think. And that was on the CW. Ah, okay. Yeah, the documentary that came out actually, but um, I just want to say, you know, first and foremost, like you said, uh, 
inspiring kids, motivating kids and stuff like that. You know, people that's in my disability, you know, that has my same disability and stuff. That's what it's all about. You know, it's all about the, you know, the future athletes. And this is one reason why I do it too at the same time is like, you know, trailblazing for the ones who are coming after me. You know, I had a lot of kids, you know, they're like, I want to be like you. I'm like, nah, be better than me. You know, like run faster than 1092, run faster than the times that I'm going to put up in the future. You know, like, come on now, like, be better. You know, that's what it's all about. But this untethered um, documentary, this came about, um, I guess it's been two years in the making. Honestly, this was supposed to have been a surprise for me. Like, I wasn't supposed to know anything about it, which I didn't, honestly, up until uh, March of this year when my agent mentioned, hey, on running, my sponsor wants to do a documentary with, you know, you, Dave, and it's going to be called Untethered. And so, of course, pretty much is a documentary just running through, you know, my life and the streets of New York. And um, it's just a lot of flashbacks. You know, they had my coach in there, you know, my coaches from high school, um, my school, you know, videos of me playing different sports, my mom, you know what I'm saying, my fiance. So there's like different things that they were just showing and just showing a transition in life up until like, okay, now no, no, uh, I guess sadly Jerome and I were no longer running together and now uh, there's a transition here. No, I'm untethered from Jerome and now I'm tethering up to you know, uh, some new things in the sense of like a new guide. I have a new fiance, you know, a new life, a new way of life. So that was like the concept behind all this. And um, yeah, like I said, I didn't even know anything about it until I didn't even know like how they were going to shoot it up until I was in New York when it was time to film. I'm like, so wait, where am I supposed to be? When am I supposed to be there? What am I doing? How am I doing it? Like what's going on? And then of course the guest features that they had in there, I had no idea that they were going to be in there either. So I was like, whoa, okay. <laughs> Just go with the flow. <laughs> and what does the story mean to you? What's the, what's the platform? What are you trying to tell people? Um, honestly, what I've been uh, what I'm trying to tell people is uh it doesn't like don't be afraid of the unknown or what's going to come you know and don't be afraid to let go of those things that you know you may have been holding on to for a long time you know everything has a time and a season you know Jerome and I we've you know had a very great run no no pun intended and um you know I know I'm I still consider him my brother you know, and it's like, man, you know, even though we're not running together on the track, you know, of course, going for further, no, <laughs> sorry, going forward in life, you know, of course, we still want to, you know, I hope, you know, be in contact with one another, you know, hang out with one another, and, and of course, continue to push towards, you know, your goals, whatever your goals may be, you know, and um, don't be afraid to, uh, like I said, just, you know, continue to move forward with everything. Yeah. Does that make it easier, this this idea of not being afraid of the unknown? Does that make it easier to approach a Tokyo? You know, because it's, I mean, you've trained hard, right? Yeah. And and you want to have your best performance. Of course. On the biggest stage. But mm -hmm. sometimes wanting to have your best performance on the biggest stage makes it that much harder to have your best performance on the biggest yeah. stage. And sometimes and it, it may not happen, you know, like anything can happen um not being afraid of the unknown it doesn't make it any easier because of course it just make it's it's still scary because you don't know what's there you know um my biggest thing is just having um and this is just for me personally you know i am uh my slogan is running for his glory i have a firm trust in god and trusting in god for whatever the outcome may be you know, good or bad, that's where my foundation lies. And I'm just going to put my best foot forward and come what may, you know, that what makes it, you know, a lot easier for me to be able to take that step forward, because knowing, hey, no matter the outcome is all for the glory, you no know, glory of God. So that's going into Tokyo, same thing, I'm just going to go out there, I'm going to compete, do everything that I can, you know, I pray I win gold because, of course, I'm training hard out here. And um, if I don't, you know, it's it's okay. This isn't the end all for me. I'm planning on doing another two games. So we're going to continue to go forward and we're going to, to continue to, you know, 
put our best foot forward, you know? And like I said, don't be afraid of the unknown. (laughs) (laughs) Which is awesome. Well, David, thank you. I mean, we will look forward to seeing you in Tokyo 2021. And then we'll look forward to Paris in 2024 and LA in the U.S. in 2028. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's when we plan on heading out. (laughs) Well, perfect. Well, best of luck to you there. Thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your story and sharing your speed with us. uh, We get to see you on, uh, you know, during the Paralympics. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, no, it's been a total pleasure. Thank you to all of you for joining us. We really appreciate it. As usual, the greatest gift that you can give us, the highest compliment is to tell your friends, to tell your friends to tune in, to check out people like David. We'll continue to have great guests. This will be a podcast. You will be able to see it on YouTube. You can listen to it on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And if you can follow us, if you can like us, that continues to help us move forward. And tell this story. So David, again, thanks a ton. We'll see you soon.